Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Massell. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, Christmas time is here, a time for family and coming together and sharing of good tidings and looking back on a year well spent. Perhaps the biggest change in terms of healthcare is the rollout of the new online insurance marketplaces. For the first time, Americans seeking coverage are able to shop for plans online through online insurance marketplaces. And for the first time, Mark, those folks who are seeking that coverage cannot be turned away due to pre-existing conditions and they can't find their coverage ended because they got sick. This is so huge for the country. And as we know, change of this magnitude doesn't come easily. And there's certainly been a lot of complexity connected to the rollout of the online marketplaces and Obamacare in general. So no shortage of challenges, but still I'd put it in the category of uh, great news. Healthcare.gov is running more smoothly for users across the country, but there will be continued corrections moving forward. While December 23rd was the deadline for signing up in time to be covered by January 1st, Open enrollment does continue through April 25th if you're going to be able to get coverage in 2014. So those are really important dates for people. And I think as the message becomes more clear, we'll see more and more interest in getting that coverage in place. But Margaret, uh, a recent AP poll shows that three in four Americans are blaming the health care law for higher premiums for some policyholders and more overall confusion in the healthcare system. I think that's probably opinion now, not necessarily judgment. We've seen it go up and down over a long period of time. Well, Mark, those perceptions are really important. Um, You know, we take such a long view of this, but even if you look back just on 2013, I have to keep coming back to the same conclusion. We have come a long, long ways towards a true shift in healthcare in America and making healthcare a right for people. Been bumpy, but the tide's turning. Mm -hmm. uh, And that hope of a triple aim, better care, better quality, containing costs, I think is going to come to fruition. Well, and we can't forget all of the amazing innovations underway, irrespective of the healthcare law. There's a sea change in technology side and healthcare, also slow in coming, but coming nevertheless. Well, innovation is something our guest today knows quite a bit about. We're revisiting our conversation with a remarkable innovator in the healthcare arena. Dr. Patrick Soon-Chong is a physician inventor. 50 patents to his name, mostly in the pharmaceutical and biotech space, but also the head of the Bipartisan Policy Center CEO Council on Health and Innovation. He's leading a team of some of the nation's most successful CEOs to build an information superhighway for healthcare that will take into account a patient's genomics and proteomics to accelerate the pace of health information exchanges with the goal of improving pathways to cures. He's doing some really exciting work. And the managing editor of factcheck.org pays us a visit. Lori Robertson checks into claims that are being made that some insurance premiums will double. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we'd love to hear from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Patrick Soon-Shung after headline news with Marianne O'Hare. But first, let us all here at Conversations on Healthcare wish you a very happy holiday. Happy holidays and peace and health in the new year. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. It's the end of the year and all is clear. The spotty rollout of the health insurance exchanges continues to dominate the message of the Affordable Care Act. The Obama administration has been aiming for 7 million Americans to have signed up on those health insurance exchanges during open enrollment. And while the pace is picking up and in some cases dramatically... 
The numbers are falling short. While some 2.3 million Americans have opened accounts on healthcare.gov or some of the state sites, 1.9 million had yet to sign up for plans by mid-December. Open enrollment continues through April 15th, but folks seeking coverage by January 1st need to have signed up by now. Some states are doing very well by most accounts, those states who've set up their own exchanges. California has seen 160,000 residents sign up for coverage. New York State, some 70,000 and rising. Connecticut, around 30,000. Kentucky raking in high numbers as well. But other states have been plagued by issues since the start, with Oregon being the most problematic. Barely 10,000 signing up for coverage on that exchange. Meanwhile, one of the goals of the health care law is to pull back the lid on price secrecy in health care. And that is something that is coming to fruition in fits and starts. A recent survey of New York area hospitals showed a dramatic price swing from hospital to hospital for similar procedures. Take an uncomplicated birth, for instance, cost 6300 bucks at Bellevue and twice that at NYU Langone downtown, about twelve five. The organization Catalyst for Payment Reform points to New Hampshire as a model. Its state website allows consumers to plug in their insurance plan, hospital and procedure and get an accurate projection of real out-of-pocket costs. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these Healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Patrick Soon Chong, physician, scientist, entrepreneur, and co chair of the Bipartisan Policy Center's new CEO Council on Health and Innovation, which is combining the efforts of CEOs from some of the nation's largest corporations to develop strategies that will improve employees' health and wellness and lead to more cost effective health care. Dr. Soon Chong is the founder of numerous pharmaceutical entities and is responsible for over 50 patents for groundbreaking drugs and medical procedures. He is chairman and CEO of the Institute for Advanced Health and the Healthcare Transformation Institute. He also founded the National Lambda Rail and Nant Works LLC, whose mission is to converge semiconductor technology, supercomputing, advanced networks, and proven innovations to revolutionized healthcare delivery. Dr. Soon Chong, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. You know, the Bipartisan Policy Center just announced the formation of a group that you're co-chair of, the CEO Council on Health and Innovations, which features CEOs from some of the most formidable companies in the country. And the goal is to highlight innovative strategies that are going to improve the health and wellness of employees working for those large corporations. You know, Margaret and I both uh, have a good friend, Mike Critelli, who was chairman and CEO of Pitney Bowes. And uh, we know when Mike was CEO there, uh, he had a real passion for uh, this type of transformation in his setting. Tell us a little bit about the collaboration that you've built and some of the key players and the, the passion that really drives the team. So, you know, you mentioned Mike Critelli and he and Craig Barrett had created this organization called Dossier, and uh, I helped support and fund that organization many years ago and continue to with the concept that really the private sector and the large employers could significantly impact this country by transforming health and had the good fortune to to meet with visionary leaders such as Muta Kent at Coca-Cola mm-hmm. and Lowell McAdam at Verizon and Brian Monihan at Bank of America who had the very same passion, wanting to do, make a real difference not only to the employees but to, to the nation with regard to health care. So um, this council, I think, I honestly believe will be one of the most important impactful organizations that will really drive action rather than um, just a council for policy or for, as a think tank. I think we call ourselves a do tank. Um, <laughs> 
so bad. That's great. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and these are very, obviously, not only visionary uh, leaders, but operational leaders who run major corporations and see healthcare as a crisis for a nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just honored and proud to be um, a part of this organization with uh, Muta, myself, and, and, the, and the rest of the board. So, Dr. Soon Chung, I think you might have just said that you only had one meeting, so this may be premature. And I think I understand that the CEO Council on Health and Innovation isn't planning to issue a report on strategies or best practices until next year. So what kind of strategies are you planning to focus on? Can you give us a glimpse into that, that look to have the most potential for improving the health of the population and impacting health care costs? No, very much so. This team, meaning Lowell McAdam, Brian Monahan, and, and Muta Kent, we've been working together as long as two to three years ago. Let me give you a little bit of the history. About four years ago, I met with Brian Monahan at Bank of America with the concept that collectively um, we needed to create an infrastructure in this nation for a fiber infrastructure such that information sharing could, could occur to address not only chronic diseases, but things important like cancer. And that from the 80-20 rule, we all know that what's really going to bankrupt the country is, is the issue of chronic diseases. And then I met with Lowell McAdam at the Verizon level, and we participated together in the World Congress of Health, and we found the same passion. And then I met with Muta Kent, who's doing amazing things on a global basis for the world, including purifying water and, and, and what he wants to do for health. And so over the course of the last two years, we've actually quietly implemented tiny little pilots inside our own organizations. And what I'm excited to say is that the implementation is actually moving forward in real time as we speak. And the CEO Council is the first public announcement, so to speak. Well, I'm very excited about the sort of concept of sort of network knowledge and uh, how you plan to apply that. Talk a little bit about the sort of thematic themes that uh, are embedded in the Affordable Care Act, sort of the triple aim of improving access outcomes and containing cost. And they seem to align with uh, your own group's uh, efforts as well. Can you tell us about the sort of three-pronged approach that's being used by the CEO Council to improve health and wellness of employees and, uh, and how it aligns with the goals of the Affordable Care Act. So the way we're looking at this, the first thing is to look at, at the patient. And really, we're looking at not just wellness, but also at illness. We need to figure out a way to manage the patients in the continuum of the entire life when they're well, and we need to ensure that they have the right diet, etc., But on the other hand, when they're desperately ill, uh, then there's this whole area of uh, am I getting the right treatment, what's the best care? And then there's a third element that's in between when they have hypertension, asthma, diabetes, obesity, and what we call wellness. So you have wellness, wellness, and illness. And the mission of the council is to address that entire continuum of wellness, wellness, and illness we need to address as the council and, and the private sector is the ones that's actually going to be able to do this much faster than the government can. So the mission of the council is to implement innovative strategies to take advantage of the wireless technology and the advanced computing and the cloud technology that currently exists today and apply that. So we have implemented strategies 
that unfortunately can only be done with areas of speed and implementation between the private sector, the nonprofit center, the philanthropic center, and then finally the NGOs and the government. And that's why people like Ray Chambers was invited with a special envoy to the United Nations. So this is very much a implementation council of actually testing and validating technologies at large scales so that it could be implemented across this country, but but also being used on a global basis. The council is to look at healthcare delivery systems to address coordinated care, to address wellness programs that are, are real and measurable, and to address illness programs where we take advantage of the genome and the proteome mm -hmm. that's going to uh, enter into our areas of care. Well, Dr. Sun-Shung, I think we know that there's been so much innovation over the last decade, I would say, around strategies to change behavior. Much has been done, though not enough, in employee wellness, some big improvements in technology. We would really be interested in hearing about some of the specific strategies and what the breakthrough is in the thinking or the implementation or the innovation that moves this ball forward. Let me start at the point of illness because it's an easier way to sort of understand it. So we also invited the thought leaders, both on the provider level. We also invited the American Cancer Society and societies such as the pediatrics and primary care physicians, et cetera. I think the issue is, let's talk about cancer, for example. I don't think what people realize in our country now, we have over 20 million cancer survivors, and there's 2 million cancer new diagnoses a year. There's 40,000 patients with breast biopsies a year that are read for the wrong patient. 20,000 prostate biopsies a year that are read for the wrong patient. Would it be acceptable, for example, that we now know from 2001 to 2005 in California, that patients with pancreatic cancer received the wrong treatment 65% of the time. I think these are the kind of statistics that are not only unacceptable, is unconscionable that we do not address. So we ask ourselves, how is it possible for us ever to be able to bend the cost curve or even get the best care when we're spending more than any other country in the world and ranking lowest on the tables? And the question is very simple. How could we ever hope, for example, in cancer to bend the cost curve and get the right treatment when we don't know what the right treatment is to be given before treatment begins? If you have pancreatic cancer, the dogma is that you have a standard of care, which is the current standard of care, which is a single drug, which is on the market. The survival rate is maybe two months to six months. Yet, if we were to tell you that if, in fact, you had the correct treatment and the correct molecular profile, the opportunity for you to be free of disease, completely free of disease, and be alive five years out. And, in fact, when we say we now have multiple patients with that exact statistic, so this is the challenge that there is no such thing as I call a national information highway, an interoperable system that for the first time connects not only the knowledge base of the nation and the collective wisdom of the nation to the delivery system, but also connects the delivery system to the payment system. On the knowledge system, we are making such amazing breakthroughs that we will make more scientific, technical, biological breakthroughs in the next five years than we've made in the last 50 years based on the genomic and proteomic science. But that information will not enter into the delivery system. It may take 10 to 17 years to enter the delivery system. But that's unacceptable when you're dying of 
pancreatic cancer or any cancer or any chronic disease, that you could have a different outcome if, in fact, that knowledge was in the hands of the delivery system. When you go to the delivery system, there's a total disconnect and absence of any coordination of care. When you're in the home, when you're in the clinic, when you're in the hospital, so there is actually a non-system of care and a quite dangerous system of care because not only the knowledge is not available, but the coordination doesn't exist. When you come to the payment system, the only way the providers are incented is to do as much procedures as possible because it's a fee-for-service-based system. There is no ICD-9 code for healthy. The only way the nurses, the doctors, the providers get incented is to wait until you get to the emergency room as doing as much procedures as possible. So then if you look at the knowledge system, the delivery system, and the payment system, these barriers between these three create such a non-system of care, it's no wonder we spend $4 trillion and have no way of countable value-based care, no way of measuring outcomes, and no way of having real-time knowledge that can actually be actionable to change the clinical direction and the clinical cost. That's the strategy we've taken the last five years to seven years to build an infrastructure across this nation that you would then tie the knowledge system to the delivery system. And inside the delivery system, you'd create a coordination of care and then tie that to the payment system so that the payment system incents health rather than illness and mitigates from illness to wellness back to wellness. And I think the CEO Council now finally reaches the payment bucket where one of the opportunities of the CEO Council is to completely change the payment system and to incent the providers for a healthy human being rather than reactive treatment for illness. We're speaking today with Dr. Patrick Soon-Shong, physician, scientist, entrepreneur, and co-chair of the Bipartisan Policy Center's new CEO Council on Health and Innovation, which is seeking collaboration among some of the nation's largest corporations to develop strategies that will improve employees' health and wellness and lead to more cost-effective health care. He's also chairman and CEO of the Institute for Advanced Health. You've been talking about this knowledge network that uh, works with the delivery system and the payment system. And I wonder if the delivery system isn't at the heart of the problem here and whether or not you're employing some change management techniques. I know uh, this whole quality improvement process, and a lot of this requires not a prescriptive relationship, but it, it requires everyone to be engaged. How are you thinking about change management when you're thinking about the delivery system? Because it's sort of a radical redesign that's needed. You've hit on exactly the right issue. That is the delivery system. If you ask the core element the council is working on is the changing and the transformation of the delivery system tied to the change of the payment system to incent the delivery system to adopt. Nothing motivates more than change management by incenting payment to adopt the change. On the delivery system itself, you're completely correct. The greatest fear I had when the health information technology program was launched and we had the $800 billion of stimulus funds was that we would build what we called medical bridges to nowhere, that the embedded current software systems that currently exist in the United States totally prevent interoperability. It totally prevents information of activity on a day-to-day basis. The only way that we would absolutely be able to get true care coordination and population management is have the capability of a patient when the patient's at home or the patient's in the clinic 
on the community hospital, on the doctor, or in the tertiary center, and then back at home with continuous information exchange of real-time uh, clinical data at the fingertips of both the patients and the provider, that technology and that interoperable system did not exist. And so I presented myself six or seven years ago to Dossier and said, we as leaders need to create this infrastructure for the United States. That is why I took on the National Lambda Rail. The National Lambda Rail is a fiber infrastructure that NASA used to land the shuttle. So if one could then take technology that currently exists today and then the magic of what we call machine-to-machine -machine learning, wireless technology, whereby vital signs could be monitored directly out of the machines, whether it be a blood pressure machine, a ventilator machine, and then we integrate that data continuously into the cloud with all the clinical labs and the imaging and tie that to the activity down to the activity level of whether it's a nurse practitioner, whether it's a doctor, physician's assistant, and provide then both transparency and clarity of treatment, and then be able to monitor the outcomes in real time and create continuous learning systems across the continuum throughout the nation, we will then truly transform this care. So I presented this plan around 2008 to the Institute of Medicine at the National Library of Medicine to initiate this on the country. And unfortunately, I could not get the government agencies to adopt this. So we then left out on our own and created the Institute of Advanced Health and partnered now with the large employees of the nation. And let me share with you now with excitement where we are. In order for the doctors to know what is the right treatment to give, there's thousands of different clinical protocols for hundreds of different cancer types with hundreds of subtypes. It's beyond the cognitive power of a doctor to understand what treatment to give. We have, through a software as a service in the cloud, now deployed this decision tool amongst 8,000 oncologists as we speak today. And the insurance companies have now been given a tool to approve the payment and know in real time before treatment begins that the patient and the doctor is getting the right evidence-based treatment. Number two, if we can then capture the vital signs of a human being in a hospital and at home, regardless of what machine, what medical device. Now, there's 4,000 different medical devices out there, whether you're in the ICU, in the, in the emergency room. We've created APIs that can message and talk to every one of these medical devices. This year, we'll be capturing 3 billion vital signs across the United States so that these vital signs will self-populate the electronic medical record regardless of what the electronic medical record is, whether it's an EPIC or CERNA. And now you have vital signs that could be captured in the cloud. Now, if you can now tie that information across the continuum from the patient when the patient goes to the clinic with a software system that actually captures the activity and cost in real time. We've now adopted that, and that's running uh, across 3 million lives in the United States today in cancer patients. If you can then interconnect that to imaging of CAT scans and PET scans, uh, there's a study that CAT scans, a higher uh, radiation causes cancer in children. But if you could take these CAT scans and PET scans and put the data into a supercomputer and then stream the results so that instead of just 64 slice images or 120 slice images, you have a million images because it's every second of the data you then have a way of creating image in the cloud down to the patient. We now have this deployed places like Cleveland Clinic and Mount Sinai 
and have 14 FDA approvals to deploy this across the nation. We recognize that all the information we ultimately need will come out of a blood test, and the blood test will be the genomics, but not just the genomics, but leapfrogging to proteomics. You need then a supercomputer to manage this kind of analysis, because this kind of analysis right now takes 11 weeks to do for one patient. So that's why we built a supercomputer that has now taken 6,000 human genomes, 3,000 patients, and computed that complete analysis in 69 hours. That translates to the fact that we can now complete the analysis for one patient in 47 seconds. The images that can be analyzed from any CAT scan, any MRI, and placed in, into a connected device in the, in the patient's and doctor's hands. The vital signs that could be captured remotely from machine to machine and self-populate your data. And the decision support tools that is all evidence-based. All of a sudden, we have a real learning system that is totally scalable. Mm. And that's the strategy that we've been deploying. And that's a strategy we can deploy across this nation uh, through the CEO Council. We've been speaking today with Dr. Patrick Soon-Chong, physician, entrepreneur, co-chair of the Bipartisan Policy Center's new CEO Council on Health and Innovation. You can learn more about the Bipartisan Policy Center's Council on Health and Innovation by going to bipartisanpolicy.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Solve Healthcare. Dr. Soon-Shong, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, House Speaker John Boehner's premiums are going up. He says his premiums will double and his deductible will triple under the Affordable Care Act. It turns out that's true, but his experience is atypical compared with most Americans and even other members of Congress. It all shows how some will pay more and some will pay less under the law. Boehner's rates are doubling because of his age. He's 64 and his wife's age, 65, plus their high income. The speaker is being forced out of his employer-sponsored insurance through the federal government and into the exchanges, thanks to a Republican amendment to the health care law. Exchange plans can charge more based on age, making this a costly shift for the 64-year-old Boehner. Plus, he smokes, making his premiums higher. His wife is now joining Medicare, and the couple will pay a higher Medicare premium because of their income. We reached out to Representative Joaquin Castro of Texas, who is 25 years younger than Boehner. Castro chose the same plan on the exchange as Boehner did, but his premiums are going down by about 50%. In fact, he could have selected a more generous plan in terms of the deductible and still saved money. That's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. 
Asthma and COPD are growing health concerns in this country. 18 million adults and 7 million children suffer from the condition, and those numbers are on the rise. In spite of how much is known about the disease, many with asthma and COPD have a hard time controlling it. Often those suffering from asthma know some, but not all of the triggers that bring on the attack, and it's difficult to predict when an attack might happen. GPS to the rescue. The FDA has recently given approval to a tiny device that asthma and COPD sufferers can attach to their inhalers. The GPS device is linked to software on the user's smartphone that sends information to their clinician whenever they use the inhaler. The idea being that you can track where and when an asthma attack is triggered and log details of the location where it happened to get a better handle on what triggers to avoid in the future. The data are also collected and coalesced into a larger database that can chart areas with higher incidences of asthma and begin to mine information to inform public health decisions around controlling the disease. The asthma map has been undergoing clinical trials for several years through the CDC and has already been deployed successfully in two cities with higher than normal asthma rates, Sacramento and Louisville. Developer David Van Sickle sees this device as a powerful new weapon in assisting patients and clinicians to better manage the disease. Now, with the FDA approval of the device, Asmopolis plans to make the product available to the general population. Marrying simple GPS and mobile phone technology with medication use, leading to healthier outcomes for millions of asthma sufferers. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.